15 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. This all happened before my time, but the raw, grainy black and white footage of Neil Armstrong taking his small step represents a moment of huge human advancement when we conquered the stuff of dreams and made the impossible happen. That spike in achievement has since all but fizzled. It's been a staggering 44 years since humans have been to the moon, but we're about to see another spike, taller than we ever imagined. Space travel has been reinvigorated since going from the exclusive domain of governments to that of a billionaire's hobby. And these guys are thinking beyond milestones of what they call flags and footsteps. Let's take Elon Musk, who's aiming for humans to set up a permanent camp on Mars at a scale of thousands of people, all in the name of hedging our bets against extinction. I mean, the long-term aspiration is to develop the technologies necessary to transport a large number of people and cargo to to Mars um, in order to create a self-sustaining civilization there. This episode, we listen to Peter Diamandis, the authority on space exploration, and get down to how realistic the mission to Mars really is. I would put money on private industry, put money on a next-generation Falcon launch vehicle that Elon is building, getting people to Mars first. He set a goal of being there by 2025, 2027, which is, you know, 10 to 12 years from now. And I think that he has a good shot at making it. But Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, SpaceX and SolarCity, has some contemporaries that share his ambitions to leave Earth. Billionaire Jeff Bezos, founder of none other than Amazon, is also venturing beyond our atmosphere. And we discover Amazon was merely a stepping stone to getting there. He said he's building Amazon to make enough money to really go out there and open the space frontier. So how is this all of a sudden possible? The constraints have been blown apart. We have discovered a near infinite belt of asteroids. They are made of exotic elements and have the ability to be our fuel stations in space. And now, just like when Bruce Willis landed on one, if you have the cash and the will to land on it, you can own it. U.S. lawmakers have decided to expand the reach of capitalism into the universe and make celestial bodies a source of income. President Barack Obama signed an act giving U.S. companies the right to the commercial exploration of asteroids and other bodies in space. The law states U.S. citizens are entitled to own and sell the resources they obtain. The move has thrilled some aspiring space entrepreneurs. And no wonder these guys are excited. But these asteroids are trillion-dollar assets. Any way you slice or dice it, they're worth trillions of dollars. It's just the beginning, right? With the technology being developed, the impetus now, the capability to get off planet, the regulatory frameworks in place, I think we're going to start to see the science fiction world that we read about as kids really becoming real. Tony Stark lives for real in the form of our billionaires, and the race for the new space economy is thriving. I'm Tommy McCubbin, creative director, startup founder, dad and podcaster, and this is Future Sandwich, Episode 3, Asteroid Inc. Elon Musk featured in Episode 1 of Future Sandwich, the driverless car race, when he talked about one of his companies, Tesla, and how he's aiming for a world with sustainable transport. He's successfully disrupting the auto industry, and simultaneously, he's flipping space transport and exploration. 
This is a chunk taken from an interview with CNN's Fareed Zakaria from January 2016. Now, when you think if you have a big idea, just take a minute to think about what Elon Musk calls a big idea. Just listen to how casually he talks about such epic missions. I mean, the long-term aspiration is to develop the technologies necessary to transport a large number of people and cargo to to Mars um, in order to create a self-sustaining civilization there. And that's really why I started the company, was because it seemed as though... To create the possibility for life on other planets. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it it, it sort of started off when I was uh, thinking about what to do after PayPal, and uh, I'd always been interested in space, but I didn't think there was anything that an individual could do in space. I mean, it seemed like the province of large governments. Um, and, uh, but but I, I sort of started looking into it, and, and I went to the NASA website to, to, say, to find out when we're going to Mars. <laughs> it seems like, obviously, that is the next thing after the moon. Um, and I couldn't find anything. Um, so I was like, wow, what's, this just seems very strange. Initially, I was under the impression that, that, it was a, that we'd lost the will to do that, um, and I, and I late, later came to the conclusion that I was quite wrong about that. I think the, the United States in particular is a nation of explorers. So how do you even approach actuating a vision as big as sending humans to Mars? Developing a Mars transportation system, it has to be uh, affordable to go. Like, it can't just be, like, billions of dollars per person to go to Mars. Then that you, there's no way you could establish uh, a base on Mars at, at that cost. So... We have to develop uh, rockets that are rapidly uh, and as close to completely reusable as possible. Um, uh, as an example, the, the Falcon 9 costs about $60 million. I mean, it's sort of like a jet, you know, it's like, uh, but the cost of the, of the propellant is only about $200,000. So it's just like you can imagine how expensive it would be if you had to buy a new plane every time you went somewhere. Uh, very few people would fly. Uh, but refueling a plane is pretty easy. Like getting, I mean, right now, getting to Mars is impossible. So, like, it's kind of doesn't matter what, uh, you know, what you do when you got, when you, what, what you do when you get there if you can't get there. Um, so the first order of business is to figure out how to, how to get there. And it needs to be uh, in a way that uh, enables large numbers of people and cargo. It can't just be like a handful of people because that's obviously not going to create a self-sustaining civilization. It, um, and Apollo was an amazing, inspiring thing for all of humanity. But the last time we went to the moon was like 1973 or 4, I believe. So we don't want to just have flags and footprints for, and, and then never go to Mars again. If we just have one mission, that, 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 that will also be a, a super inspiring thing, but it's not going to fundamentally change the future uh, of, of, of humanity. And being super inspiring is simply not good enough. So this is my favorite part. A couple of brilliant questions from the interviewer, Fareed Zakaria. Well, I, I think we could probably send the first person in about 12 years. Wow. Will you be that person? Only if I'm confident that SpaceX will be fine if I die. That's, you know, if, if I was, maybe if I, was, if I was confident that the mission would continue if, if, if I wasn't around, then I would do it. Now that is commitment. Now, as a journalist-like object, being a podcaster, it's always important to keep a balanced perspective. And so I wanted to tune into one of my favorite podcasts. Hi, everybody. This is Peter Diamandis. Welcome to Exponential Wisdom with my dear friend, Dan. Dan, how are you doing, pal? I'm really great. 
Dan Sullivan and Peter Diamandis are the guys to give that perspective, as they are a couple of the biggest thinkers on the planet. Their podcast, Exponential Wisdom, is a conversation between the two of them over Skype, and it's gold if you want to know about next-level concepts around innovation and disruption. Today we take a piece from their episode 14 on Exponential Wisdom, opening the space frontier. Elon Musk starred SpaceX as a means to build the launch vehicles to get to Mars. And while the U.S. government, to some degree the Russians, to a smaller degree the Chinese, are looking at Mars, I would put money on private industry, put money on a next-generation Falcon launch vehicle that Elon is building, getting people to Mars first. He set a goal of being there by 2025, 2027, which is you know 10 to 12 years from now. And I think that he has a good shot at making it. I know that it is truly his passion and he will do everything he can to make it happen. Mm -hmm. That's why he built the company. He's launching NASA astronauts and cargo to the space station and defense satellites in the interim really to build his company. It's now valued privately at north of $15 billion. And more importantly, he's got the, I think the Greek word is chutzpah, mm -hmm. to try and, no, that's not a Greek word, actually, uh, to get us there. <laughs> so very exciting. The significance of what Elon Musk is doing, but also Jeff Bezos, is the reusable racket, because that's been a huge waste area for all the previous government ventures, is that you only get to use the launch racket once, and then it falls into the sea. But as we just found out a couple of weeks ago with the Blue Origin project of Jeff Bezos, they actually brought it down within four feet of where it took off. And the whole notion of reusability is critical. And I think the media got this wrong. Elon demonstrated reusability years ago, very similar to what Bezos just did with his grasshopper vehicle. So the Falcon launch vehicle is made up of a first stage. It has nine Merlin engines on it. And those engines are replicas, duplicates of each other. And then the upper stage has one Merlin engine with just a different expansion nozzle on it. So the nine engines in the first stage represent like 80% of the cost of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And what he's done is... He demonstrated with the Grasshopper vehicle the ability to vertically launch and then vertically land. The Falcon 9 has made now three attempts at landing the first stage. They got very close last time, and they'll make an attempt when they return to flight. But it will be different from what Jeff has done. This will be a return from very near orbital velocity. Mm -hmm. But still, what's significant here for everybody listening to realize is you've got two billionaires both Elon and Jeff Bezos. And I've known Jeff since college. When I was at MIT, Jeff was at Princeton. I started a group called Students for Exploration Development of Space, and Jeff started a chapter of SEDS at Princeton, where he was the president. And it's been his core passion. When I first met with him mm -hmm. back in 98, 99, early Amazon years, he said he's building Amazon to make enough money to really go out there and open the space frontier. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you would, you've got Paul Allen, you've got Richard Branson, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got Elon Musk, and many others who've got the wealth now to do what only the governments could do before. So it's going to be a very exciting race to space going on with those guys. Love it. Love the fact that it's happening with or without government spending. Well, the race aspect of it is so crucial because 
these are highly competitive individuals, but you need the competition to keep increasing the breakthroughs in technology that are going to happen because they really do want to be first. And my sense is that the prize is going to become very, very apparent as we get closer to the voyage date. So now we're close to cracking reusable rockets. It's a question of fuel. And as we burn nearly all of it to get 300 kilometres above the surface of Earth, what is going to fuel the next leg to getting to Mars and importantly back again? We need a fuel station in the sky, a place in the universe where we can land, refuel and carry on our mission. Especially given Elon wants to send thousands of people and their supplies to Mars, we will require a major breakthrough. And ladies and gentlemen, we have one. Someone has had an idea which actually stacks up and makes it all possible. It's the idea that over the last 15 years, since 2000, we've discovered a population of asteroids that come very close to the Earth. When they hit the Earth, that's not a very good thing, but there's a population of asteroids that come to the Earth. They're energetically easier to get to than the surface of the Moon. Right. Meaning the amount of propulsion you have to use to get there is less than going to the Moon. And because they have lower gravity fields, because they're much smaller, they're a half a kilometer in size or a kilometer in size, to get materials off of the asteroid is much, much easier than getting materials off of the surface of the moon, which has a much higher gravity field, one-sixth that of Earth. But these asteroids have a gravity field that's one-hundredth that of Earth. Mm-hmm. And these asteroids are some of the most valuable real estate. I think of them as the Manhattan Islands. And these asteroids are made up of materials that we find really important. Fuels, hydrogen and oxygen as a fuel source, nickel, iron, cobalt for construction materials, and then platinum group metals, platinum, palladium, osmium, iridium for strategic metals for electronics. We've worked on this for three years now. And about six months ago, the House passed legislation, the United States House of Representatives passed legislation A month ago was the Senate. And then just before Thanksgiving, the United States president, Barack Obama, signed into law legislation that allows a private company to basically mine and own materials taken off of asteroids and then have that as a right that they can sell. Yes. So anytime you can create that, you create an economy. And that's what gets me so excited. The last time an economy of this magnitude was created was when the likes of the Americas and Europe were colonised, where it was an epic land grab after private ownership was formalised. This is the exact same thing playing out, where private ownership of this land, be that planets and asteroids, is what's making this all possible. If you pay to get there and stick a flag in the dirt, it's yours to extract whatever you want from it. These billionaires are gaming each other to get to this new frontier. It wouldn't be possible without the timing of each of these people and the shift in the laws. And the most interesting part for me is we don't know what's on the other side of these adventures. It's one giant gamble. These asteroids that we're targeting, what's the time frame over the next decade? We'll find out. We're racing and working hard, 3D printing, designing, building spacecraft. But these asteroids are trillion-dollar assets. Any way you slice or dice it, they're worth trillions of dollars. And even if we discount them, you know, a hundredfold or a thousandfold, they're amazing assets. So... It's just the beginning, right? With the technology being developed, the impetus now, the capability to get off planet, the regulatory frameworks in place, I think we're going to start to see the science fiction world that we read about as kids really becoming real. And 
I, for one, would rather depend upon the economic engine. I call it the economic exothermic reaction than government programs yes. to open up space. So yeah. that's what gets me excited. Yeah, and it's very exciting because people in their 40s or 50s may see no point to this, but there's a lot of nine-year-olds who are now steering their future towards this possibility. And you're going to have tens, hundreds of thousands of young people on the planet who now are looking at this as a very practical, plausible career for themselves as they go forward. Yeah, amazing, amazing. I'm sure my sons will grow up to have their man-on-the-moon moment. But if the likes of Elon and the other billionaires have their way, my boys will be able to fly up there and step off the ladder themselves. Bring it on. What a bloody great time to be alive. This has been Episode 3 of Future Sandwich, Asteroid, Inc. I'd like to thank Peter Diamandis and Dan Sullivan for borrowing their conversation. You really should check out their podcast, Exponential Wisdom. Search it on iTunes or check out futuresandwich.com in the show notes. Also, thanks to Fareed Sakaria for borrowing some of his chat with Elon Musk. The full interview is also in the show notes. And thanks to Matt Thompson, your editing skills are the secret source of what makes this show work. Most of all, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. The feedback has been overwhelming and I'm pumped to keep rolling out more. You know what makes a big difference? If you have 30 seconds, jump into iTunes and rate Future Sandwich and stay updated by subscribing or following on SoundCloud. You can also get new episodes to your inbox by signing up at futuresandwich.com and thank you again. You guys are the lifeblood of the program. Also, give me a shout on Twitter, at Team McCubbin. I'm always up for hearing what you think, any suggestions of people I should talk to who are making the future happen today. I'm Tommy McCubbin, and this has been another episode of Future Sandwich.